It's the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach, August 5th, 2008, show number 83. Well, if you haven't heard about it already, the Ruby Fringe Conference in Toronto was a great time. Unfortunately, it's rumored that the next one won't be happening for 20 years in 2028. I did get a few interviews while I was there. Organizer and visionary Hampton Catlin, artist Anita Kuno, mongrel maintainer Wayne Seguin, and accomplished college student Nathan Weizenbaum. The Rails Podcast is brought to you this week by GoDaddy.com. GoDaddy's low-cost hosting is monitored 24-7 by real people in its world-class hosting centers. Best of all, GoDaddy's deluxe and premium shared hosting plans offer full support for Ruby on Rails. As a listener of the Ruby on Rails podcast, enter the code RUBY, that's R-U-B-Y, when you check out, and save an additional 10% on any order. Some restrictions apply. See the site for details. Get your piece of the internet at GoDaddy.com. We had no idea how this thing was going to come out, and uh, we're really happy. Like, uh, And I, I think the thing that really makes it... I'm totally going to cop a joke off my Twitter feed, by the way. Uh, the thing that really makes it are the people that came, and me, of course. So, Because you were one of the people who came. Yeah. I thought it was an amazing that there were... Every single talk was great. There was heavy drinking all night long, and people still showed up at 9 a.m. for the lecture the next day. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, I didn't show up at 9 a.m. for the talks, oh, you, no. You missed mine? Oh, no, today I was because my talk was like an hour and a half after. Oh. But I was working on my slides. <laughs> I was like glancing up, and I'm like, yeah, I like philosophy. Yep, yep, con, cool. All right, back to my work. Yeah. But I, I do agree with this. The scientific method bit. Is yeah. programming? I was like, bang on. I totally had, like, that's, yeah, I was like, exactly. Like, incremental, uh, very, uh, um, oh, Dawson, what's his name? Richard, Richard, Richard Dawkins. Dawkins. There we go, sorry. The, uh, the crane, the slow building crane of science that level by level you build something up until you have something solid in the end. That you can't just, like, take something to its complete point. I didn't even think of it that way, so it's like a web application evolves well, yeah, or any software, a small really. incrementation. Yeah, yeah, it should evolve. It should start out as the first working point and then keep adding and adding and adding as it's, as it's needed, right? As the evolution requires that feature. Um, yeah. yeah, I didn't think of that. I'll have to say that in the next... Yeah, I, I never talk about my feature building stuff, but it's, it's the stuff I'm most passionate about is business and web app, like, design and how they work and functionality. But no, no, I never talk about it anywhere. Yeah. Now, briefly. Yeah. Jabble, jabber. Jabble, jabble. Jabble. Yeah, jabble. It's going to do for uh, JavaScript what Hamill did for HTML. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. I, I don't know what it's going to do. I mean, it's an idea. It's a scratch that, uh, or an itch I had to scratch. Not a, or a scratch I had to itch. I don't know. I guess you could have an itchy scratch. Anyhow. So, uh, yeah, it was something I, I needed to do because I had been frustrated by a lot of JavaScript development before. So I, yeah, decided to, to try Jabal. And, uh, but really, it's not a JavaScript replacement so much as the glue that goes in between uh, your, your DOM and the, the functionality you want it to have in almost the simplest format. So the stuff we kind of normally do with JavaScript that's really annoying, we sort of jam it into this nice little format that's very compact and explains very succinctly what you want the page to do for you. Yeah, at first you talked about it as if it was like a completely new language, but really you still do need to know JavaScript, and at some points you're calling JavaScript jQuery methods, yeah, but, well, but it 
it reduces the code quite a bit. If you look at side by side, you write a lot right. less code. It, it and gives you, you superpowers along the way. I mean, it has a lot of soup, like attributes on selectors, which is a really crazy idea. I, I don't know. I don't know if I got it across with people, but the idea that you have some object and instead of it being a class itself. You're using, you're going through the object tree, and you're selecting objects out of that tree and applying functionality and values to them, and styles and behaviors and event handling based off selecting through the object tree, which is kind of something we do in, in you know, anyway. But when you look at that and you step back and you say, what if we were Ruby and we just created objects and then we came to those objects and then we found them and did things to them, like instead of this, they, you know. In regular programming, we have things that grab. You know, they they do the action. They go, all right. Uh, I'm going to inherit from this. I'm going to grab that ability and that behavior and that information. But it's really weird on the web page. We load this data, and then it has a sort of you know uh, like alien. It has like smock onto its face, and like it, it has to go out there and wrap its tentacles around what needs to happen on that page. So, so yeah, I don't know. I it's it's really I, it's kind of blowing my mind actually. The more I think about it, which is really retarded. But it kind of came up on the blackboard one day, and it just made sense. And I don't know. I'm, I'm excited for somebody else to write the uh, compiler so I can use it. I tried it out. It seems like it's partway there, but maybe everything doesn't work. Yeah, not everything. There's a lot of little issues. I mean, I'm hoping there'll be a lot of different compilers. Some that are Ruby, some that are JavaScript, some that use jQuery. Some that, like we're gonna we're gonna have a core Ruby one, but after that, it. I'm really hoping this one, if people like it, we'll see. If, if it turns out to be a good idea, I'm really looking for multiple, multiple implementations of it. Well, even though it seems so standard to us, I think just the whole HTML, JavaScript, server-side thing is just such a weird combination. I mean, it's like, it's programming, but there aren't really events, and you're really working with documents and all of this. So it's like we need new ideas to figure out how to work with this because people are just kind of getting this rut of like, okay, yeah. I'm just generating text and sending it back and Absolutely. forth. Absolutely. No, and and I mean, I don't think Java is the end of it. I think I think there's a at some point somebody's going to have a good idea that's going to step back from the whole process and really like I think there is a unified idea going on, and I think we're all too blind to see it. And uh, I think this is a step in that direction. I don't know what that direction is. I hope it doesn't end up looking like Flash Builder or something like that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's really perceptive because there's yeah, there's all these parts where we're generating a document, and then we have code running on it, and then we have styles we're assigning to it randomly, and then it ends up in a browser, and it's pa- it's a passive protocol, <laughs> like, and we're at making it active with sessions like we're, or not, we're making it stateful sorry not active we're making it stateful with sessions and URLs and I don't know it is a bit hacky it seems to work for now maybe that's the beauty of it it's evolutionary right it's a, yeah, it's a it's step we started evolved. with documents and then we started adding features step by step and uh, yeah I don't know I don't know what it is somebody smarter than me is going to come up with something cool though I can I can feel it so we're in the platypus stage about now I, I, well we're, we're an octopus growing tentacles all the time with complexity and then one day we'll turn into a land mammal. Think about that. <laughs> land mammal web development. Yeah. Oh, well, thank, yeah, this is definitely one of the top two conferences I've ever been top to. Top two? I was at a really good oh. typography conference. Okay, the oh, best God. tech conference I've you been talk to. talk to Lucas here. <laughs> oh, this is ending it on a bad note. It's all right. No, no, I forget. It was a great conference. I forget you. We can hug it out. Hug it out. Yeah. Okay, so here with Anita Kuno. 
what kind of development do you do? How'd you get into Ruby? Um, I basically am learning development. I'm uh, still at the baby step stage. Um, I got into Ruby because I love where I live. Uh, I live in a rural community, and I love the trees, and I love the fact that I can see the stars at night, and I can open my my, uh, door and let my dog out, and an hour later I can open my door and let my dog in, and um, that's really relaxing for me. And I needed that because I lived in the city for a long time, and I needed something different. And where I live, the um, economic curve is very seasonal, so very, very busy in the summer, not much happening in the wintertime. And I wanted to break that cycle of feast and famine, and I took a look at my options. And initially, I, uh, I've done a lot of different things, and I'm very interested in complementary healing techniques and uh, vibration and sound. And I have a series of crystal bowls, and initially I wanted to make MP3s of crystal bowls and sell them um, on a website. But I didn't know anything about creating the website. I wanted to concentrate on the music. And I listened to somebody who also has a site, and he said, oh, just learn some HTML, and make sure you learn CSS, and then just put it up and you should be fine. And so I did, and I looked at what I made, and it looked like crap. And I looked at what he made, and it looked like crap. And I looked at what, and he seemed happy with that. And I looked at what other people were doing, and I said, you know what? I just, I can't stand what I'm looking at, and I made it. And I got very disappointed and um, frustrated and not sure what to do. So I just spent three days searching. I just kind of went into this black mood, and, and I just searched, and I just searched and searched, and I thought of every keyword of anything that interested me, I just followed my nose. And the things that kept coming up uh, were Ruby and Rails. I didn't know anything about either one. I didn't know what they me- meant, nothing. But when I searched the keywords uh, of things that interested me with regards to what I wanted to do, these were the ones that kept coming up. So I said, all right, let's just uh, key into these and find out what's going on. And I found out about the Rails pub night that happens in Toronto, and I just showed up. And the first night uh, I got there, and and I had emailed Pete Ford previously. He organizes the the, uh, Rails pub night in in Toronto. And uh, he came up, and he spent a couple minutes with me and said, welcome, and, and glad you're here, and so on. And then he moved off. And I spent, I was there shortly before 7, it was 9.30 before I had my first conversation. I just, I stood there on the outside of this group of people and they all knew each other and I just stood there because I knew that eventually, I didn't know how long it would take, eventually I would get what I needed. You're very patient. I've learned to be. It's the exact same way that I got into film. You just go where the people are and you just stand there and wait. And some people, some other person I talked to that night was discouraged because nobody was talking to her. And she was actually a Perl developer, and it would have been much, much easier for her to make the transition to Ruby and Rails. But she got frustrated because nobody was talking to her. So she left, and she never came back. I had one conversation that night, and the person who spent time with me was Ilya Grigoric. And I, I stood there, I, I had no idea, I have no idea at that point who the people were, who the names were, anything. I didn't know Ilya from a hole in the wall. And he was standing there, not talking to anybody. I was standing there, and we just struck up a conversation. And I said, look, I don't know anything. If you're willing to tell me anything, I'll be grateful for the information. And as you know, he runs uh, Aid RSS, 
and very, very complex in terms of information gathering and processing. And, and um, he talked to me about the design of, of the servers and how they talk to each other and how the responses are filtered. And I missed 70% of it. But what I got was I got some keywords. So I took those keywords and I filed them. And I also got that the one person who spent any time with me spent a lot of time with me and was very supportive and very encouraging. So I went back. All I knew before, it was basically about a year ago now, all I knew was how to browse the internet and how to check my email. I could set up Thunderbird and that was it. And so I bring my laptop and I found somebody to help me dual boot Linux uh, and I made the move over to Linux, and I'm so thankful that I did. Um, and like anybody who makes that move away from Windows, you're, the Windows is so um, fear-bound, right? Every, terrified. Nothing's going to work. I'm not going to find the software. I'm not going to. I paid for all these programs. How can I justify? Blah 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 blah. So I dual booted because I was afraid. Well, I basically never went back to Windows. I now have friends on IRC who will spend six to eight hours with me continuously to help me with a problem. When I got my Slice Host account up, I have a friend in Russia, that was six hours. That included an hour of Vim, which I had never encountered. I'm not familiar with Vim, but the Slice Host, setting up a Slice Host account, includes using the VI command. So, not knowing anything, okay, type this in. All of a sudden, I'm in Vim. I didn't know it. My buddy in Russia didn't know it. I'm pushing buttons trying to make something happen. I'm erasing files. I'm like, you know, the buffer is 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 closing down. I'm I'm freaking. I was like three quarters of an hour in absolute panic because I just paid money for this account and I'm erasing all my configuration files and I don't even know how to close the file and I don't know how to get them back. And so my friend in Russia. But you kept at it. I had no other choice. What am I going to do, right? Just fall down and, 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 and not go back? So I just sat there. I did have to take a break for water. We just typed in and said, I'm going away for a minute. I'll be right back. And he checked out the Vim um, manual and came back and told me what commands to type in. So I followed his instructions. And we got me up on the server. I have since learned enough of Vim to know how to not panic and to get myself in and out and save a file, blah, 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 right? But the amount of times that I've done stuff not knowing anything at all and just go in and then realize how badly I could screw things up if I do the wrong thing, it's terrifying. But I've been really, really fortunate because even though I live far away... I've got a really, really... I don't have an extensive network of people that I know, but the people that I know are rock-solid people. So if they have the time, you know, they're busy, their families work, so on, but if I ask the question and they respond and have the time, they make the time for me. If I have a problem, I explain it, they listen, and we work through it together, and they don't leave me hanging by myself. Where am I now? I know HTML. I know CSS. I've been trying to learn JavaScript, and I'm going to say to heck with that, and I'm just going to learn Jabble. There's, there's a certain point that I've talked to people, and they say you have to have the confidence to do something. And I guess that's part of my thing is, is being so remote. Everything I do, I do on my own. 
And I always feel like I have to learn that one more piece, that one more piece. I just, I don't know enough about databases yet. I don't know enough about servers yet. I don't know enough about uh, HTTP, right? And so, but I keep filling in holes. And I think I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm hitting plateaus and I'm, I'm getting there, so... Wayne Seguin, one of the current maintainers of Mongrel. So, what's are you friends with Zed Shaw, or how did that handoff happen a couple, almost a year ago, right, that you took over Mongrel? Yeah, um, basically he posted to the Mongrel group that, <laughs> all right, I'm done with this, who wants to uh, take over? And uh, several people replied, and then he turned over control to them. Simple as that. Now, we've got other people here... Uh, Marc-Andre yes, working on Thin, and we've got Ebb. What do you think about all these other alternate uh, implementations that have taken Mongrel as an inspiration? Um, they're absolutely awesome. You know, almost every one of them has taken the Mongrel, uh, the core, Regal, uh, HTTP 1.1 parser, and using that as their you know, HTTP parser and running with it. Now, Thin's done some stuff with using Unix sockets to supposedly make things faster. Are you going to take a hint from their book and try that in Mongrel as well? That I don't know. I'd have to talk to Evan more about that because Evan has done most of the maintaining lately. Evan Weaver. I've been taking a yes, very backseat role. Uh, Louis Lavina has been doing all of the Windows maintenance on it. And uh, we also have another gentleman named Felipe. Uh, Felipe or Felipe? Not sure. <laughs> but uh, he's an awesome gentleman as well. Now you're at Engine Yard. Got I talked to Ezra back in January. They had just gotten three and a half million dollars, pretty much earmarked for open source. They just got fifteen million dollars for open source. Are you going to be spending more of your time working on Mongrel, or is that not part of the overall Engine Yard strategy? At least right here. Actually, my helping out with Mongrel is completely independent of my work at Engine Yard. Okay. Uh, I'm an application support manager at Engine Yard, and uh, I basically try to make sure my uh, guys underneath me have everything they need to do the job and take care of any issues they might have and if any customers need help I make sure they get it and we just try to make sure that our customers have the best experience possible so this Simple is just that. fun for you but I'm sure it helps to know mongrel inside and out when you're helping customers absolutely I learned a lot from that and uh, when it goes to debugging it I uh, and I crank up the GDB I know what I'm looking at if I had to find a hung mongrel or whatever, it really helps. So talking to Nathan Weisenbaum, who I have never met but lives in Seattle, theoretically, and maintainer of Hamel, SAS, and probably a couple... Of, do you do uh, Make Resourceful also? or I did for um, uh, pretty much since it started, but recently I haven't been doing as much Rails work, so I've handed the maintainership over to Hampton. Which he started it. So he starts projects, he gives it to you, you give it back to him. It's a little tennis. We've pretty much set into that pattern, yeah. And you've started on Jabble also. He's uh, roped you into working on that. That's right. I don't know if I'd say roped into. It's. It, I definitely enjoy working on these projects. Um, he's he's very creative, and the ideas he comes up with are, are very fun to work on. So you're at the University of Washington in Seattle, but you're going to go out to New York City, work for Fog Creek Software. Unbelievable, because Joel Sposky had this whole tirade against Ruby and how it wasn't anything people should take seriously. Does he know that you use Ruby? 
He does, although he wasn't there for my interview, so I don't know, maybe he would have vetoed it. I was interviewing when he was in Japan for some conference. But I think he... I think his tirade against Ruby is not so much against Rubyists, or even the language as it is now, but just sort of the the way the Rails community was when he wrote that. I, I don't know. I'd have to ask him to accurately represent his views. Well, from what I hear, they do use Ruby a little bit internally, even uh, camping. Talking to Michael Gorsuch, they're, uh, one of their system administrators. Oh, really? I, I hadn't heard that, but it's it might well be true. I definitely... Okay. Yeah. You'll have to ask him about it. So what kind of things are you lo- looking to learn? It's like a couple-month-long internship? Yeah, I've actually um, already done about half of it. I started in um, July... No, June. Um, and it's... I... I think it would it'll be interesting to work in uh, uh, an environment with um, when I, where I'm closely collaborating with other people um, which I've never really done before and where I'm working on a, a large existing code base um, as opposed to starting something small on my own that's that's really been interesting and also I'm I'm really fascinated by their in-house language wasabi so working with that and I hope to get a chance to um, work on that a little while I'm there. Um, I think that's going to be a great, great fun. Yeah, that's fascinating. Pretty much only the people internally even know about that. It's not really released to the public. It's just an internal tool that they built to be cross-platform and be able to target all the types of platforms they want to. Pretty much. Um, the... Fog, the Fogbugs customers actually get a copy of the compiled Wasabi. They can modify Fogbugs and be able to recompile it. And it's actually not so much for cross-platform compatibility now. It just compiles to C-sharp and JavaScript because now they can run uh, C-sharp on Windows under the uh, Microsoft implementation and Linux and Mac under Mono. Um, but they, they now have a huge amount of code written in Wasabi that they don't want to rewrite. And also they have, um, Wasabi has this really nifty um, code generation facility. So it can, at compile time, create code. And they have all sorts of powerful stuff written in that. Now, it seems like a lot of people are doing this. we got the Google Web Toolkit to where Java, people are using Java to generate JavaScript into our applications, and then of course we got Haml to generate HTML, SAS for CSS, and Jabble for JavaScript. At least in the Hampton world of Hampton Catlin, yeah. do you think this is like a a trend, or is this just kind of a hack until we have better interpreters and and maybe more cross-platform uh, languages? Is Jay Phillips weighing in? I, you know, when you said that, it actually made me think of uh, Giles Bokut's talk at Mountain West RubyConf, where he cited uh, code generation in action. I think and uh, DHH once cited it as well as sort of an inspiration for Rails, um, but Giles basically made a talk out of the book, and it was actually pretty interesting. I think code generation has been something that's, uh, um, you know, kind of linked in with metaprogramming. So it's uh, well, and you're one to talk about it because adhesion basically generates asterisk code in a, in a sense, right? Yeah, it's it, it. I think it uses Ruby to its. Uh, to the way uh, Ruby is beneficial, I guess you could say, and you know that that certainly includes metaprogramming and and adhesion lets telephony developers leverage uh, metaprogramming. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's my 
thoughts on code generation. I really did not mean to, to jump in. Sorry. Well, it's, a, it's a conversation. What do you think, Nathan? I think um, I think the, it is sort of a trend. I think people are well, one way or another. I think compilation is becoming less hard of a problem. Whether that's because tools are getting better at it, or people are getting better at it, or people are just realizing that it's not incredibly hard to write a compiler. Um, I probably a combination of all of those. I think people are beginning to to write compilers and to to think about ways they can translate between things that they they just hadn't thought about before, and like like Wasabi and um, like Steve Yegi's JavaScript for Emacs, which he's working on, and the Lispers Paren script, which compiles Lisp to JavaScript, and all sorts of things. And I think it's it's really exciting. I personally really like writing compilers, which is handy because I do it all the time. And I think I think it opens the door for a lot of cool things that can be done that couldn't be done before. Seems a little ironic that as we work in higher and higher level languages, it becomes easier to write a compiler, and so then people are working a little bit lower in ways that maybe previously wouldn't have been done. Yeah, I think well, I think it's important to to keep in mind the the low level stuff that's that's being generated. I think because often it's not it's not that low level. Like one one interesting thing about um, the the compilers that are becoming more prevalent now is that they aren't the sort of compilers that mostly they aren't the sort of compilers that um, people have been writing forever in the sense that they don't compile like C to assembler or scheme to C. They compile like Haml to HTML or JavaScript to Lisp or Lisp to JavaScript. And so it's it's more of a one-to-one relationship. It's it's more translation than reduction. And I don't know what that means, but it's interesting. But you're still treating a file full of SAS as just text that then you tokenize and you pull that out and you do something. It's different than maybe Ruby metaprogramming where you just try to define methods for all the different words you're going to use. Right. It's definitely not not the same as, as metaprogramming, and it's not entirely different than... The, than traditional compilation, but the the relationship between the source language and the target language is a lot closer in um, a lot of the the new compilation stuff that's being done. Last question: If people wanted to learn more about this, should they go look at the code of Hamel? Should they learn about Lex and Yak, or which kind of what resources would you recommend? Well. I think I, I don't think Lex and Yak are necessary, at least for for basic things. And this might be I might be not I it might be easier for me because I write I tend to write languages uh, compilers for languages that are um, that are indentation based and where all the information is contained on a single line. So the parsers for those tend to be very different than they would be for a traditional programming language. But I think parsing in general isn't the the trickiest part of the 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 compilation. I think um, 
doing, I, I think generating the output and figuring out what output to generate in particular is, is the hardest part. So a lot of people who are trying to compile more complicated languages just start out with Lisp-style parentheses and S-expressions and then eventually create a parser that outputs that.